This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'd like to introduce our wonderful speaker today, Dr. Velasquez Manana. Dr. Velasquez Manana received her medical degree from the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine in Puerto Rico, followed by her internal medicine residency at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York, where she was also the chief resident. This was followed by our luck with her joining us here at UCSF as a hematology oncology fellow. She's currently a clinical instructor in the Division of Hematology Oncology at UCSF and holds a role as the postdoctoral research fellow at the University UCSF National Clinical Clinician Scholars Program. She aims to support and improve the outcomes of patients with lung cancer from vulnerable backgrounds using health services and disparities research, and is a major advocate for workforce diversity and gender equity. So our outline for today's session in what happens after is we'll start with this intro for about five minutes followed by the lecture by Dr. Velazquez Emaniana on surveillance and survivorship. And we'll end this with um, our interactive Q&A with all of you. With that, I'd like to hand you to my colleague and friend, Dr. Velazquez Emaniana, to discuss with us what happens after. Well, welcome everyone. And thank you so much for joining um, us tonight. It's definitely a pleasure to be able um, to talk to all of you, and we are going to, over the next hour, do a whirlwind tour about what is survivorship um, care and what really happens after a cancer treatment and diagnosis. And a lot of the um, subjects that I am going to um, speak about today, we're going to cover relatively um, superficially for the amount of data um, and of knowledge that we have. Um, we could do a whole series um, of, of weekly sessions just on survivorship care, um, and we're trying to consolidate everything in one specific hour. So we'll start by what is actually and who is a cancer survivor. And this is a subject that, like I said, there's a, a huge body of research and data um, behind. And the definition of who's a survivor is actually controversial because in reality, a cancer survivor is any person who has had a diagnosis of cancer. Um, most people or Historically, the term had been used to identify those who had completed treatment for cancer and who were either on remission or cured, but the use in that um, way of the actual term, actually, it's exclusionary. And everybody who lives and has been diagnosed with a diagnosis of cancer is considered a survivor by all of our guidelines and in, in national societies. Um, and there are many, many types of survivors, including, like I said, those who currently have active cancer, who have been just diagnosed, who are undergoing treatment, or those who are free of cancer. And like I said, this term may or may not um, resonate with um, certain individuals, but we'll use it throughout the lecture to refer to this spectrum um, after a cancer diagnosis and to the group of patients who have been diagnosed with cancer at some point and stage. So survivorship um, care as a field um, really reflects the care that we give patients 
throughout the cancer journey, even from before you are diagnosed with, with cancer, um, regarding what are some risk factors that can increase risk of cancer, um, from, to diagnosis, to providing supportive care during treatment, um, and here again, referring to that survivorship stage, once patients have completed treatment, what are things that we need to be in the lookout for and monitoring, um, and includes all the way into palliative care and, and end of life. And there is really, it's a field that has been ongoing for at least 20 years, and that has changed quite a bit over time. Initially, um, in, at the beginnings of what survivorship um, was as a field, we focused a lot on specifically um, looking at what are it, what is every single need that a patient with cancer could have and trying to address all of them. And that led to overwhelming people with tons of referrals and tons of information. Um, and we've really learned and are continuing to learn more and more, trying to move from that cookie cutter approach in which it fits everyone to something that is very personalized and that is specific to each individual because we as humans, all of us are going to have different needs and all every person um, is going to have different reactions to treatment, different specific complications that may or long term effects that they may have or not and different priorities. Um, and what those are regarding your priorities and similarly um, the specific side effects or issues that may be the most important um, to a person over time can change. So we want to make sure that as a field, we are taking into consideration how changes um, occur and how much needs vary along the, um, the process and the lifespan of people and similarly um, how they're individualized from person to person. So how big of an issue um, is survivorship here in, and cancer survivors? Um, it is a growing and population as we get better and better with trying to identify cancer at earlier stages and coming up with better treatments. We have had a lot of advances on different types of treatments and how we treat cancer depends and varies quite significantly depending on the cancer type. And as we move um, further in the field and continue to do investigations, patients hopefully will continue to live longer and longer, which means that patients who are considered cancer survivors and who can potentially have long-term effects and different issues that are affecting them after a diagnosis of cancer will continue to grow. Um, as of 2020, it's estimated that there's almost 17 million survivors of cancer in the United States. And this is only in the United States, not accounting the rest of the world. So we're talking about millions of people who have received different kinds of care and who have specific needs um, after being um, receiving treatment for cancer, which are approximately 5% of the, of the US population. And as you can see on this graph, um, it's really showing the numbers in millions about how they're increasing over time from 1977 to 2022. The colors represent the years that people are living after a cancer diagnosis. And I'm glad to see that, you know, this 
this yellow and blue parts of the of the bar graphs are actually increasing as we get better with specific treatments. So the number of people who are living longer after being diagnosed or treated for cancer is increasing and are a large proportion of, of what the patients that we see or treat during survivorship care are. Um, who have different, very different needs than what people may go through right after a cancer diagnosis. And this number is only going to continue to grow. Um, these are some projections um, that were done um, looking at specifically if we continue at the current rates, how many cancer survivors we're expected to see. And by 2040, um, we're expected to see at least 26 million um, cancer survivors. Um, so again, a huge um, need for continuing to understand uh, what are the needs of patients, how could we address and support them. And the number of um, specific um, survivors really varies by what sites and what types of cancer there is. Um, so the most common cancers, as, as you may have heard in the past, that affect us as humans are breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, and those, as you can see here, are the left two um, green bars in this chart account for the large majority of patients who are um, on the survivor um, stage and have completed treatment on, on the United States. And it's not surprising because as we know, similarly with colon cancer, which is the third one there, and gynecologic malignancies, people are routinely screened for breast cancer with mammograms, for colon cancer with colonoscopies. Um, cervical cancer screening is, uh, is, again, recommended and part of preventive and primary care. So we expect to see those diagnoses being in larger numbers and at the similar time have a hopefully earlier and earlier diagnosis in earlier stages that we can treat with multimodal therapy, we can cure and get people to live longer. Among women um, and female survivors, it's estimated um, that breast cancer accounts for around 44% of women. And then the second and third more common in around 10% are uterine and colon cancers, followed by other more rare um, cancers. And among men, the most common as seen here is prostate, which is 45% of men, so almost half followed by colon cancer and then um, melanoma. And who are cancer survivors in terms of demographics? And this pie chart really shows you what the um, age distribution is for people. And as you can see more, almost 70 plus percent of cancer survivors are age 60 and older. Um, a, less than 40% um, are, are young individuals. And that really matters because it, we need to tailor how aggressive we're gonna be with care, with interventions, what types of issues um, patients have after chemotherapy and treatment, depending specifically also on their age. And we have to think of what other comorbidities and other illnesses people may have that are common in certain age ranges and that you, may experience as we get older. So to give a little bit of historical context and, I, and, and to kind of set the stage about what we're going to talk about, I mentioned earlier that 
that's really the, the field of cancer survivorship is something that is around 20 years old or a little bit more. And once it started, um, one of the big um, institutions in medicine who does research and provides guidelines called the National Academies um, really pulled together a group of experts to come up with specifically what are the needs in, in gaps in knowledge and what do we need to do to improve survivorship care for patients who had received treatment for cancer. And this, um, this meeting and this project was done in 2006, trying to come up with specific guidelines and where to move the field forward, where should research and advocacy and, and clinical efforts um, be put. And it's a shame that, as you can see here, really the title is From Cancer Patient to Cancer Survivor Lost in Transition, which highlights what one of the big problems is and its lack of coordination and the fact that healthcare is extremely complicated and cancer treatment is even more complicated. You need surgeries, you need imaging studies, you get treatments um, done in infusion centers, radiation, pills, all sorts of medications have and on top of that to see primary care doctors. You may have to see a nutritionist, you may need physical therapy, you may need to follow up with surgeons. So it's quite complicated for any person to be able to handle this multiple appointments and even more when you're actually feeling sick or going or not or feeling unwell from cancer itself or from the treatments that you've received. And that was really quite highlighted in this um, particular summary from the National Academies in which People were working in silos between oncology care, primary care, surgeons, and others, and there was very little communication and partnership in trying to provide care for patients. Um, it highlighted that providers lacked education. So oncologists, for example, lacked education on what are some of the issues and that normal persons get with aging? How do we screen for, or who should we be screening for high blood pressure, for high cholesterol, for having risk factors for heart disease, for thyroid? You do not want your oncologist doing half of those things because we have not done it for many years. Um, and at the same time, similarly for things like getting, you know, flu shots and vaccinations and your shingles shots, um, all of those things depend on and are commonly mostly done by primary care doctors. And on the other hand, primary care doctors lack knowledge and education and training about how to care for patients who had sur um, survivor cancer diagnosis and who had gone through therapy. So they didn't know about long-term side effects of chemotherapy or what to expect or how are, um, what cancers specifically we should be looking for and screening. Um, and there were little resources and guidelines. So since then, a lot has been done, um, which I'll show you briefly and then go a little bit more into the depth of what different areas of survivorship are um, to try to improve how we um, provide care. So from that specific um, meeting and, you know, guideline summary, what came up? So people came up with what are the components that are key to specifically providing follow-up after somebody gets their treatment for cancer. And one of the key and number one priorities is trying to prevent 
recurrence, so coming back of the same cancer or developing another type of cancer, a subsequent one. The second part is preventing what are other late effects of side effects of chemotherapy, screening for cancer spread, um, assessing what the physical and psychosocial effects of treatments and of cancer can be on survivors, and coming up with interventions for those consequences. What are specific interventions that people need and do? So things to treat medical problems that can arise from treatment. So for example, women who undergo breast cancer surgery and or gynecologic surgery, they have lymph nodes removed and may have chronic lymphedema, which is swelling of the extremities. They may have sexual dysfunction. So how do we treat those and how do we identify them? Similarly with pain, fatigue, and with the psychological distress that can happen to both cancer survivors, but also their family members and their caregivers. Another key component, which I'll mention briefly, is also related to what are the socioeconomical factors. So we know that a cancer diagnosis really puts a toll on people and can change all of your life in terms of specifically loss or changes of employment, insurance, financial finances, being on disability, and how can we provide services to support patients through it. And finally, like I mentioned before, really that coordination of care, which is key between specialists and primary care providers and supportive staff in clinics. So the needs of the, so the needs of the patient are met. So here, as you can see, and this is a graph on the left showing, so since that happened um, in the early 2000s, there's been a huge body of work really increasing in the area of survivorship. And this only goes to 2010 and has increased much more um, later. Looking at how can we um, describe what are the side effects of and the needs of patients and also provide interventions. Um, so on this graph, it goes through different kinds of research and the green ones are those that are randomized controlled trials. So interventions for survivors to improve specific quality of care symptoms and monitor those. Um, and the majority of that research, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but the majority of it is done in breast cancer, which is here in blue. And I say, unfortunately, because I am a lung cancer doctor, like Dr. Aurora said um, before, and um, lung cancer, for example, is a disease that has huge implications in terms of survivorship and side effects and long-term effects from treatments like radiation and chemotherapy and from smoking itself, which is a risk factor for lung cancer. There's huge stigma associated with it um, similarly. And yet we have very, very little data on what survivorship care is and, um, and what the needs of patients are. And what we do is extrapolate from all the great work that um, you know, many researchers and physicians and patients have done and driven over the years in breast cancer or in prostate cancer, which are most common diseases and have um, big advocacy behind them and big collaborations and groups internationally to help support patients. So with all of that, um, now let's try to dive in into specifically what are the different areas of cancer survivorship. And there are four specific buckets to call it so. 
Um, the first one on the top left, as you can see, is recurrence and new cancers. And that refers to, again, identifying whether the initial cancer diagnosis that somebody had returns or comes back, which is a recurrence, or if there's a development of a second type of cancer. And the risk and the 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 chances of that occurring really vary and are very, very specific and change depending on the treatment, on age, on whether somebody has genetic risk factors from family history, carry mutations like BRCA or BRCA, which are common to increase risk of cancer. The second bucket are what are modifiable health behaviors that we um, as humans may have, which put us at higher risk. So things like smoking, drinking alcohol, being obese, um, diet. Um, we know that if people modify their diet, for example, the risk of colon cancer is lower. Um, being exposed to or have chronic hepatitis and, um, and viral infections. So some types of hepatitis are, are related to developing liver cancer. HPV is related to developing cervical cancer and some also cancers of the um, head and neck, like the mouth or tongue, larynx. Um, so making sure that we address some of those modifiable health behaviors to again, go to that pre-diagnosis stage that I showed you on, the, on one of the first um, slides and decrease the actual risk. The majority of um, survivorship care and what people think of when we talk about survivorship though, goes into these two buckets on the right. Um, one being long-term and late effects, so specific to treatment-related effects, um, and that those can be things that are during cancer treatment, things that are short-term after cancer treatment, and most commonly things that are long-term and can linger or be permanent. Um, and then finally, also coordination of care, which is a huge part of what we also do, identified by that report from the National Academies, like I said, lost in transition, because this requires so much work and so many people um, to coordinate that it's very necessary for all of us to be on the um, work together. So I'll start briefly by talking about the risk of recurrence. Um, and this is something that is very, very dependent on um, specifically the type of cancer, the stage in which it was diagnosed, what types of treatments people received or not. And recurrences can occur on the same place or site or in a different location. So for example, if somebody had a skin cancer removed, in this area in which the, sur the surgery was done, um, there may be a, what we call a local recurrence. So on that same area versus if you develop a different type, um, if you develop a skin cancer further apart on the same limb, um, then that may be considered to be a recurrence on the same of the same cancer in a different location. In most cases, um, after somebody has completed their initial treatment, if you know, of cancer, they go through surveillance period that commonly is five years. And after that, um, there are different types of recommendations that are dependent on the specific subtype of cancer that determine exactly how often people should be tested and screened um, for recurrence or for development of cancer. 
on most cases, though, after those five years, really, we do not um, screen with CT scans or with PET scans seeking for recurrence. We move towards what are regular screening tests that um, the common general population gets. So for example, if somebody is diagnosed um, with lung cancer and they receive a surgery or radiation for cure, after they've completed five years after that treatment, they move on into getting low-dose CT scans of the chest that occur every year, which is this, the same guideline recommendation for screening um, that any other person who meets criteria based on smoking history would get. Um, for colon cancer, similarly, you would get a screening um, colonoscopy um, after, after completing those five years, depending on what they find is how often those would be every three or five years. Um, in breast cancer, um, similarly, we move into doing mammograms, which usually happen um, every year. Um, and in some guidelines, there's recommendations to do them every other year. It really depends on the specific um, um, guideline that the institution goes by. At UCSF, we do, we, we do yearly specifically. But what we know um, is that regardless of all of these guidelines existing, um, data has shown that actually surveillance is often suboptimal in people. And studies, for example, um, that were done in colon cancer survivors identify that only around 17% of people were receiving surveillance as recommended. Um, so definitely a lot more to be done to make sure that people have adequate um, follow-up. Now, I mentioned before that there's also a risk of developing a different type of cancer, what we call a subsequent primary cancer. So this um, refers to, for example, if I am diagnosed with breast cancer and receive treatment, then in 10 years, if I am diagnosed with a new leukemia, that is um, a type of blood cancer that is a very different type of cancer. It's not the same one. Um, and sometimes those diagnoses can be related to each other, um, which is what this specifically refers to. And that depends specifically on the type of cancer and what treatment people received. Um, so for example, if you are somebody who as a child had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of um, cancer of the blood cells and the lymph nodes, which commonly get radiation to the chest that is on what we big fields, that can increase the risk of having breast cancer and of having cancers that are on that specific area in which a radiation was given. Um, like I mentioned before, if you are a woman who had um, breast cancer or if you're somebody who had um, lung cancer and received um, certain types of chemotherapies, um, those can increase the risk of developing blood cancers um, in the future. That really depends on really how, what type of chemotherapy was given, what doses were given, and that's a risk that commonly goes down over time, but that does exist. Um, and the other part is whether or not somebody, for example, received a transplant and are on immunosuppressants and which are um, medications that decrease their immune system, then they are higher risk of developing things like skin cancer and other types of cancer. And in addition to that, um, 
still lifestyle factors and things like smoking, obesity, um, and alcohol, and alcohol can increase the risk of having um, another type of cancer. So if somebody is diagnosed with lung cancer, um, but has smoke or continues to smoke, they're still going to be at risk of developing other cancers that are related to smoking, which are things like bladder cancer or cancers of the head and neck of the larynx of the tongue, um, et cetera. And finally, genetic specific factors. Um, like I, I alluded to earlier, there are certain genes like um, BRCA and Lifromeni and other um, specific traits that are associated with higher risk of cancers because our genetic materials and the repair mechanisms of our body that help us fix our DNA can be damaged. And that makes certain people um, at higher risk of developing different types of cancer. So they may have had one specific cancer at the beginning, um, and then many years later develop a second different one. An example of that, for example, are women um, who have breast cancer related to BRCA and then develop um, GYN-specific cancers like ovarian. And there's specific recommendations and clinics um, that really provide guidance on people who have those genetic risk factors on how to give um, screening and surveillance. Um, so at UCSF, we do have a high-risk genetics clinic that anybody who has one of these mutations in their family or who is concerned that they may have it should, um, should reach out to their doctor to be connected with. Among um, all the subsequent primary cancers, um, lung cancer is accounts for the majority of it, around 19%. Other common ones are breast um, among women and prostate among um, men who are, again, the most common that occur over time. And in people, of course, um, um, cancer is a disease of aging. So as we get older, we are, um, the risk increases and um, common cancers that may happen with aging also are going to be um, something to be at risk for. In terms of how to screen for this different types of can different cancers that can happen subsequently after first cancer, that really depends. So normal um, patients should follow the normal guidelines for screening um, that, that apply to the general population. But in addition to that, there's specific screening that can happen for um, subsequent primaries. So for example, for women who had received radiation to the chest, um, as I mentioned, like in Hodgkin's lymphoma and in other in esophageal cancers and lung cancers and breast cancers, um, there are recommendations to get annually mammograms and sometimes also MRIs, depending on whether that happened um, at an earlier age or not. Um, so that's something definitely that um, exists because there's a known increased risk of potentially having um, breast cancer. Similarly, um, for children and young um, um, teenagers and people who at a young age receive radiation to the pelvis or to the abdomen, to the belly, um, the, or to the back and spine, there are recommendations to start with colonoscopies to screen for colon cancer um, at the age of 30. Um, 
Again, for those with radiation to the chest and axilla and other areas um, in the upper body, there's recommendations for lung cancer screening um, with doing CTs of the chest and also on patients um, who have had brain radiation um, during a young age, there is recommendations for getting um, surveillance with MRIs to identify if there's the development of any cancer in the in the brain or, or the central nervous system. Now moving into specifics of what most of survivorship care um, focuses on and you've probably heard about are uh, related to monitoring long-term side effects of treatment. And here this picture is showing what basically are all and not all, but many of what the potential long-term effects of um, chemotherapies and treatments are. And those effects vary by person. So not every person will get them. They vary a lot by the specific treatments that people received. And they vary a lot also by how, for how long did you receive those treatments? Um, now with the development of newer and newer types of treatments like immunotherapies, like targeted therapies, like cellular therapies, like CAR-Ts and others, what this picture looks like is very, is very different. And we're gonna continue to see um, this field of survivorship care expand into niches that are very specific to each of the different types of cancer and types of treatments. Um, and the next three slides, this one included, I apologize, are going to be dense with very small um, um, letters, but it has the, it, the purpose specifically is to highlight how diverse all of these late effects can be and how dependent they are of whether they're from chemotherapy agents um, or from radiation and others and can vary and, and really affect anywhere in the body. Um, so common things I, I'm going to highlight are things like um, cardiac disease and cardiac complications that can happen after um, chemotherapy or radiation. Um, and that is something to be quite aware of. So for example, certain chemotherapies that are called anthracyclines and um, agents against her two like trastuzumab are commonly used on breast cancer can have long-term um, side effects of patients developing cardiomyopathy or difficulty or dysfunction, how their heart pumps. So that is something that both oncologists and primary care doctors have to be cognizant and know about so we can identify even if somebody develops that um, complication five, 10 years later. Radiation um, therapy to the chest can also cause complications um, in, in the cardiac um, system, in the cardiovascular system, like developing fluids surrounding the heart, like pericardial effusions, inflammation, which is pericarditis, and also developing coronary artery disease or plaques, which we know um, and most people know of are mostly related to diet and high cholesterol and other things, while also inflammation from radiation um, can cause it. There's lung toxicities that can occur with scaring of the lungs and having inflammation of the lungs. Um, there's also complications to the nervous system that are related. Um, for example, things like peripheral neuropathy, which is numbness and tinkling of the hands um, and feet related to nerve damage, um, cognitive impairment, and I'll talk a little bit more about those, um, blood specific disorders, like I mentioned before, 
and organ damage. So things like your kidneys, um, your kidney function, um, specific to the bladder. Um, there's different changes on how the liver works or related to absorption of um, foods in the gut and bowel. Um, there can be changes to hormones. If for example, somebody receives radiation to the neck, then their thyroid gland may not be able to function and provide um, thyroid hormone as, as commonly. And certain drugs like immunotherapies are also um, associated with um, different dysfunction of the, of the thyroid gland, of the pancreas and others. And this list I know looks very scary because it's so um, long, but um, the rates in which this happened and to whom they happen vary significantly dependent on types of treatments, specific um, cancer that the patient had for how long they had their treatment. And some of them are things that are common and that we see like fatigue or having, you know, rash with certain types of treatments and others are things that are very rare and that we don't see quite commonly, um, but for the sake of completeness are listed here. And then um, in this last slide, um, um, there's also issues related to our fertility um, and to sexual dysfunction that are related to the treatments of cancer. Um, and many cancer treatments can impair fertility and cause um, sterility. Um, and for example, early menopause in women um, who receive um, treatments for um, breast cancer, in which we're trying to decrease the levels of hormones that can promote cancer growth. So we're going to talk a little bit about what are some of the most common side effects and how are those treated. And this is, again, a very, 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 very broad strokes and superficial of how um, of what some of the common side effects are and what common treatments are. So I'm happy to answer specific questions and provide resources later on for more um, detailed information. But something um, that is the most common complaint during treatment and after can be fatigue. Um, and this, it's, it's really dependent on the person and how it's described and of course the severity. Um, it can be described as something as I just wake up a little bit later um, in the mornings to I take a 15 minute nap in the afternoon to during cancer treatment people, some people are more tired and may need to rest in bed or in a chair for a couple hours a day. And the causes really can be anything from cancer itself during that initial stage of treatment and diagnosis um, to related to radiation, to chemotherapy, um, or to other medications that you're getting for side effects. So for example, medicines that may be given for insomnia or for depression, for anxiety may cause sedation. It may make people sleepy and they may feel more tired or more fatigued. There's no magical pill or solution really on how to treat this. Um, taking naps when you need them is the number one, I think, ideal way to treat it. And trying to really modify um, lifestyle with things like doing some degree of exercise every day and physical activity and trying to eat a healthy um, diet um, to try to improve um, really the, the level of energy and stamina um, that people have and build onto that stamina over time as um, we are farther along from having a cancer, um, from receiving a, a treatment for cancer.
if fatigue is a side effects or, or a something that is seen because or caused by depression or psychological um, um, effects of dealing with a cancer diagnosis, then looking for help with counseling and or taking antidepressants is something that definitely can help. The other um, very common effect that we see is neuropathy, which I alluded to earlier, and that can refer to numbness and tingling, which some people describe as pins and needles or feeling um, ants that are walking in on the tips of their toes or fingers to pain. Um, and it depends on degree of how much nerve damage there has been. And it's something that can be limited to tips of fingers and toes or progress and, you know, involve the whole hand or the whole foot and lead to loss of sensation. And that, again, it's really dependent on what treatments are given for how long is it caught earlier or not? Um, and are there other things that can also cause neuropathy that are adding to that nerve damage? So for example, diabetes is a very common condition that causes neuropathy to begin with. So if somebody has longstanding diabetes and has neuropathy from diabetes and then gets chemotherapy, probably that um, neuropathy is going to get worse. With certain treatments, um, and for the majority, um, usually neuropathy improves and resolves over time, um, but that can take time. So months or sometimes years, and in some cases, it can be permanent. So what are some of the treatments? Avoiding cold, which can exacerbate um, neuropathy. So patients may feel more pain if they are, you know, grabbing a cold drink or drinking cold water, um, have it taking medications. There's certain types of medicines which are written here, um, like gabapentin and Effexor, um, who really treat nerve pain um, and who you can talk to, to your primary care doctor and to your oncologist about. Um, and there's certain alternative treatments. So for example, use of cannabinoids um, in terms of CBD oils and creams um, have been shown to be effective um, using acupuncture and then exercise, similarly trying to improve blood flow um, and in that way improve some of that nerve um, conduction. Pain is another effect that we see commonly. Um, this is more of one of those short-term acute side effects, um, which is most often seen after surgery or after radiation. And it depends specifically on the type of treatment, whether this is, for example, a nerve-related pain similar to neuropathy. If somebody had surgery and nerves were cut during that initial surgery, which can happen, um, or if it's related to specifically cancer or other things that can cause different types of pain. Um, pain is treated very broadly, as many of you know, and really depends on what the cost is. So if we think it's something inflammatory, we use um, anti-inflammatories, which are called NSAIDs. So things like ibuprofen or naproxen, um, opiates sometimes are necessary. Um, other types of pain um, may be treated with Tylenol and acetaminophen, or others may require um, nerve pain medications like the ones I mentioned before, um, like gabapentin or Effexor and others. So in reality, um, pain, the pain, treatment of pain is very specific depending on the type of person and the type of procedure and where the pain is coming from, but something that requires long-term discussion with your providers and with your care team.
Um, lymphedema, which I also mentioned briefly before, is another um, major area in which survivorship focuses, primarily seen um, in many in women with breast cancer. And again, it's it's like I explained earlier, it's driven um, by the removal of lymph nodes during surgery. So these lymph nodes are part of our immune system, and they really help drain um, our body. And they are like small threads and, and vessels that help drain fluid um, and blood from our system. So when those are removed, sometimes that fluid can be, um, that fluid drainage is impaired and can accumulate in different areas of our body. Um, so for example, it's common um, to see in breast cancer clinics or survivorship clinics, women who may have swelling of one arm and not the other. So that most commonly would be related to lymphedema. And that swelling, of course, as you can imagine, can cause discomfort and pain and sometimes leads to skin breakage, um, which can be infected. And for it really, um, treatments um, it, that are key are trying to identify earlier um, to give physical therapy, massages. There are um, lymphatic massages and drainage that are um, things that patients can get and that also are taught to them um, in different lymphoma, um, lymphedema programs. And the use of compression garments um, that can help with trying to prevent um, some of the fluid buildup and bring that back. Hot flashes and early menopause is another um, big area, which is something we see commonly and both um, hot flashes can occur in men and women, depending on the specific type of, of cancer treatment um, and early menopause in women. And this can be related to surgery, to certain chemotherapies, or like I mentioned before, to hormone treatments. Um, so commonly men with prostate cancer and women with breast cancer receive hormonal therapies that are um, specific and, and, and used to decrease the levels of estrogen and testosterone on the body, um, depending you know, of men or women. And the role of those is try to prevent cancer growth and to aid in treatment, treating the cancer. But by causing um, this regulation in our hormones that our body is used to can definitely cause hot flashes that can be um, quite disturbing to people and to your regular life. So ways to treat those um, can be either again with types of medications or we try first, you know, to change what type of clothing people are wearing to make sure that you're hydrated to include showering throughout the day. So you're more comfortable. Um, and then the use of acupuncture and other um, specific um, alternative um, treatments. From early menopause, there's other long-term effects that can happen. Um, for example, it can weaken your bones and cause osteoporosis. So that is something that on women who are receiving cancer um, specific treatments that can trigger menopause and lead to not having periods um, earlier on, we want to know. So we can screen for osteoporosis so we can start supplementing with medications to strengthen bones. So we can talk about diet modifications and taking supplements like calcium and vitamin D. Another quite um, common specific um, 
complication is sexual dysfunction. And that can range from having um, decreased sexual drive, um, which can be physical or psychological or actual dysfunction um, during penetration related to, for example, vaginal dryness or atrophy or developing pain with intercourse from similarly changes in hormones from the treatments. And there are um, multiple specific types of treatments that can be done by using moisturizers, lubricants, um, and um, discussing, you know, counseling um, sessions too. Something that many people have heard about, um, and that is another um, big problem is um, having cognitive changes or changes on how we think. And that um, varies a lot depending on the person. Um, it can be something as notable as having changes on the rate of how fast you speak um, to some people having very, very minimal changes, but that are noticeable to them. For example, I had um, a patient who was um, used to always doing their taxes and they were you know very um in and they were a high functioning person very independent um and really noticed after years of treatment when they went back to doing their taxes they could not do them something that was very um simple or that they were doing in the past all the time became burdensome it was hard to concentrate it was hard to come up with the math and the numbers um and that was the first time years later that they had noticed that they had some changes on the way which they thought their cognition after their treatment and on a regular day-to-day -day basis otherwise they notice absolutely no difference um so Chemo, this chemo brain or the cognitive changes most commonly happen during treatment and get better with time. Um, but in some cases, it can be um, long-term. Um, and we can see for longer years, um, changes that people experience that can be things as even having insomnia and not being able to sleep. Quite common in patients who had brain tumors and receive radiation to the brain, less common in other types of cancer. Although, as you can see here, that says 17 to 75% of patients with breast cancer, the data is everywhere and really depends on who do you ask, when do you ask, how do you ask it. And um, of course, every patient has a completely different um, experience on how they may. Um, feel their body and experience side effects that we need to individualize for the person. Treatments are combination really of both behavioral therapies and um, pharmacological treatments. So behavioral therapies are things like improving the way you sleep, making sure that we go into routines of exercising, of eating well, of decreasing stress, of doing lists to keep up with tasks, of going to psychotherapy. And then pharmacologic interventions that are specific to pills are something that also um, has been shown to be effective. Um, and similarly depends on how severe it is when people are experiencing it. Now, one of the most common things that I can, of course, not um, not mention is the psycho psychological effects that cancer and treatment can have. And those specifically depression and anxiety are the most common um, and really are driven by the severity of how serious having a diagnosis of 
cancer can be and how difficult it is to face the unknown of, am I going to die of this cancer? Am I going to be cured? Is it ever going to come back? Um, and all of those things can cause the fin real fear and anxiety in people. Um, it can show up as anything like it's not able to sleep, being less hungry, feeling a lot more fatigue, or your more classical presentations that we think of, of depression, like feeling sad or tearful. And in terms of how to treat it, sometimes prescription medicine is needed, um, either short-term or long-term. Um, psychotherapy and counseling is definitely, I think, highly recommended um, and really seeking for support. So one of the highlights of this new era of social media, of the internet, and on being on platforms like this one, like Zoom, is that it really provides community and increases accessibility of people to connecting with other um, survivors who may be going by the exact same um, issues and unknowns and anxieties that you are as a human being. And being able to share and be heard and really um, understand what others are going through, I think has a lot of value. So I would encourage anyone to seek, whether it's online or in-person or Zoom-based um, support groups, if they're interested on it, to connect with other survivors. Um, many times it is and can be very challenging to feel that um, you have a new diagnosis that is life-threatening, you're going to, to treatment, you may have um, some long-term effects after this treatment and um, not feel like you're a burden to your family or feel like you're, you cannot speak to your family about it because you're scared that they may get sad or they don't understand what you're going through. And sometimes family members do understand and they want to also be able to engage with you. And all of these dynamics are very specific and complicated. And I think seeking support and counseling is, is really key um, in terms of, of providing support care. And lastly, one of the most common effects that unfortunately we see throughout a cancer diagnosis is the financial um, aspect. That is something that we call financial toxicity. And it's really the impact that having a cancer diagnosis can have on somebody. Um, and it comes from high cost of care. And even if you have great insurance and have no co-pays, most people, their day-to-day -day life is affected. They may not be able to work or their family members have to take time off work. You may need to find um, care for your children while you're getting treatment. Um, you may need to travel long distances to get um, specific treatment or to go into a clinical trial. And all of these things compound in terms of cost um, for people. And there's data showing, of course, also the, the effects in terms of um, gain income that is lost on people that are diagnosed with cancer at a very early, early age and need to go on disability and lose years of, of um, being able to work and be productive. Um, it's estimated that two in three people who are diagnosed with cancer may experience financial um, burden and toxicity of the cancer diagnosis. 25% of survivors report that they use all or most of their savings during cancer treatment. And of course, having that increased financial stress um, is associated with 
increased rates of depression and anxiety and distress and can affect quality of life, um, which is key throughout all of these um, in terms of our, our well-being. So there are different types of um, supportive resources that are not sufficient, I do not want to lie, but that are available um, in terms of financial navigation, um, nonprofit organizations, um, transportation support that are available. So for anyone who is experiencing this or going through treatment or knows somebody who is, um, make sure that they feel that they're connected and can ask to be connected to social workers, um, financial advisors, and others to try to come up with what are some of the alternatives that exist from different um, resources. Now, moving into the last piece um, is preventive care. And we've talked a lot about side effects um, and long-term effects. We talked about risks of recurrence. And now what are other things that we can do to actually decrease the potential risk of a new cancer developing or cancer coming back? And there's three main categories really here. One is diet and physical activity. Um, the second is um, smoking cessation and avoiding tobacco products for those who smoke and limiting the consumption of alcohol. Alcohol and smoking cessation are both known to be carcinogens and can cause cancer, um, both from exposure long-term to tobacco products. And it's known that when somebody stops smoking, and the more years they're out of smoking, their risk of cancer from tobacco decreases over time. So definitely, um, you know, calling quit lines, going into support groups, using nicotine replacement products, there's new therapies that are pill-based that also help, um, is very, very important. Um, and in terms of limiting the number, the degree of alcohol that is, cons that is consumed similarly, either avoiding or limiting to um, less than one drink a day um, is something also that helps in terms of decreasing that risk. Now for physical activity, these are things that are probably going to sound obvious, but exercise is associated with improving survival and um, patient reported outcomes in most cancer survivors. So what does that mean? It means that people who exercise regularly live longer. And this has been shown in different types of um, cancer. Most of this data comes from the breast cancer world, um, like I showed on that one of those first graphs. Um, but exercise also improves your quality of life, can improve mood, can decrease this stress, um, and is something that definitely physical activity um, is recommended. Does that mean that we expect that everybody's going to go run a marathon? No. Um, so what we're hoping is that over time, people can build up resistance and increase the, the, the amount of exercise that they're doing. Um, so what does that mean? It means the goal is to be able to do 30 minutes of a moderate intensity um, exercise activity per day, um, which are 150 minutes. So something like power walking um, or dancing, um, biking would count as this, or 75 minutes um, over a week um, if you're doing a more vigorous um, exercise. It's recommended that people also do um, resistance training to build muscle um, mass also if they 
can. Um, and again, this depends specifically on the types of of um, of your baseline physical activity, of your age, of how much you're, how physically active you are, and how can you build towards those goals. Um, I would say there are a lot of excitement um, also on trying to bring physical therapy as a tool to improve physical activity along the cancer survivorship continuum. Um, there are studies looking at something called pre-rehabilitation. So giving people who are going to go, for example, to surgery, physical therapy before so that they get stronger and see if that way they um, feel better and have less complications after surgery. Um, we hope that there are similar studies going through chemotherapy and treatments um, in the future, um, and also the use of rehabilitation after, again, with exercising and trying to improve strength. And then with this similarly looking at maintaining um, a healthy weight, which I'll talk more in a second. So what are the benefits? I talked about this um, already a little bit, but physical activity has been shown to reduce fatigue, which we talked earlier about is one of the main long-term effects and acute effects of cancer and cancer treatments. It can improve quality of life and then improves, of course, fitness and our ability to um, function. Now, in terms of diet and um, weight, um, the goal is to um, decrease the rates of obesity and try to maintain um, a BMI um, that is of less than, um, you know, your ideal weight based on size um, and height. And the reason is because having a high BMI and being obese, a BMI of more than 30 has been shown to increase the risk of dying of cancer in patients um, who have early stage breast cancer and endometrial cancers. And similarly, um, for being having BMIs over 35 in some studies um, has been shown to potentially also increase um, the risk of um, bad effects um, in prostate cancer and colon cancer. So what are diet recommendations? And diet can be by itself a two-hour lecture um, because there's tons of myths and tons of different diets that people um, can follow, recommend, read about. Um, I would definitely say to Consider asking to speak with our um, nutrition center at the can nutritionist at the cancer center, um, or with the OSHA center, um, which are um, give us complementary and alternative um, um, treatments. But in broad strokes, um, and thinking about what are common things that are recommended in terms of trying to follow a diet that promotes a healthy lifestyle and leads to reducing. Um, the risk of cancer and risk of death is increasing fruit and vegetables, limiting or avoiding red meats, um, decreasing fat intake and limiting alcohol, like I talked before. Following a you know Mediterranean kind of diet um, pattern has been shown to lower the risk of dying of cancer in certain um, larger studies, like in prostate, um, like in patients with prostate cancer. So using things that are um, rich in olive oil or nuts or fish um, and um, whole grains um, has been shown in certain studies to be um, beneficial. These, of course, are not a, um, 
you know, the data is is of associations. Doesn't mean that if somebody who has end stage cancer changes their diet, that that's going to change their outcome or cure the cancer. That is unlikely. But by having a healthy lifestyle with doing exercise and um, improving your diet, you are decreasing inflammation and you are decreasing other things that happen with age that can cause complications and increase mortality, like having high cholesterol and um, developing hypertension and kidney disease. That's still patients who have cancer and who are survivors can get like every other um, person. Now, here are some resources, and we'll make sure that more of those are online that have guidelines specifically um, with more detail about um, diet and specific um, exercise that come from um, the American Cancer Society. And to wrap up, um, I, I've talked a lot over the last hour, and I think I've shown you how complicated the care and um, multi faceted of um, a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer, who's undergoing cancer treatment, and then moves into this survivorship or surveillance um, stage can be. And really, the key is to try to make sure that we are not still lost in transition, like that report from 2006 showed, but that we develop um, more team focused approaches. So what has been done over this many, this last um, 15 plus years is to really come up with solutions to identify how can we partner with other doctors to and other um, healthcare staff to provide comprehensive care for patients and survivors. So that means many times co-managing. So having an oncologist and a primary care doctor work together. Again, they have different areas of expertise that are complementary. So being able as an oncologist to know what the long-term effects of chemotherapy and things that patient may be at risk are is helpful to um, a primary care doctor who is able to then help identify, you know, what are other things that we should be screening for, how to treat your insomnia, how to manage um, what some vaccines that people are missing are. Um, that has led to the development of multidisciplinary clinics. So clinics that are specific to survivorship care um, that provide long-term follow-up and that are similarly shared between um, teams of primary care doctors, of oncologists, of nurse practitioners, of um, PAs and other providers who have case managers and have social workers that are able to patient navigators that help people coordinate all this care, provide the support services that you may need, um, like transportation or disability or insurance, may be able to identify, you know, whether um, there are other um, needs like physical therapy that patients may have and trying to provide this more comprehensive care. Um, another part that has been added to this survivorship care is the introduction of something called survivorship care plans, which some people here may know and be aware of, um, which are more of a similar to a, a summary of what your specific treatment has been that you've completed and what are the recommendations of next steps. And that is a document that commonly is given through 
um, patients once they complete their um, oncology and cancer clinic um, aspect of treatment as they move into the primary care world um, to be able to um, serve as connection between the primary care doctors and oncologists of what is the roadmap of what your future should look like, what things to look for, what types of um, supportive care of screening tests are needed. Um, so lots and lots of interesting things happening in this space, lots of um, more things that we need to do better and discover and partner with patients to actually learn more about the experience and know how we can best provide um, support care. And with that, I'll thank you all so much for your time for listening, um, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Velasquez Manana, um, on this really important topic of what happens after cancer diagnosis, especially on cancer surveillance and survivorship. Uh, and I think you really covered excellent subtopics today that come up in the day-to-day -day practice and care of, um, of people who have had cancer diagnoses. I'll, I'll start with that, sending you a question, um, Dr. Velasquez Manana. Uh, oh, I also wanted to mention that I really liked your earlier quote stating that survivorship spans the, the cancer journey. Um, all right, so my uh, first question is, um, when, when is someone considered a cancer survivor? Um, I think since diagnosis. Um, I think that the, you know, when, when, when we look, if people go online um, and look at historically what survivors have been labeled or called, it's after somebody is, you know, free of cancer for X amount of years, which commonly five is the number. Um, I think that is exclusionary of the experience of many of our patients. Um, and I think that we should not be labeling people diagnosed with cancer as a cancer patient, but rather you're living and you're thriving. And that's our goal. Even if it is through treatments that may not make you feel that well, is how do we support people um, through that journey and make sure that they are, um, you know, living the best life that they potentially can at that different stage and build towards the future. Yeah, I think it's really important. I agree to shift the way that we term things to say a person with cancer rather than the opposite. Um, another question is, how does one, how does a person find a survivorship program if, say, they are not a patient at UCSF? Yes, so um, there's a couple ways. One is that I would ask your oncology clinic um, is the number one, the first way in which I would go about it. Um, if they have a survivorship clinic or not, or any resources specific to survivorship. Um, many academic centers and many cancer centers that are not in universities um, will have a survivorship clinic. Um, if that is not the case, there are different venues to identify those. One is there is the national, um, net, I'm, I'm forgetting what this, what it stands for, but there's a national network of survivors that is driven by patient advocacy that has a lot of different foundations and nonprofits listed online and their resources. And many of these things have resources available over the phone over the internet now on Zoom. Um, and also there's local 
nonprofits and groups that can help identify, you know, support groups, patient navigators, and other resources that may exist that provide at least the psychosocial support aspect. So for example, in the city of San Francisco, there is, you know, depending on the area, the language you speak, the demographics that you identify with, different types of foundations and organizations that provide that care. Yeah, I'm so thankful that they exist all, you know, with the with just a click on the keyboard. I'm looking on looking on Google. And just to kind of back up that same question is um, when should a person with cancer find a support group? I know you touched on support groups a little bit, and I think that I wanted to add on about some, what are tips that you might have about participating in support groups? So that is, I think, I think it depends specifically on the person. Um, I would say the, the data surrounding support groups actually shows that, unfortunately, Patients with cancer engage in support groups less than um, other types of chronic illnesses. Um, so, for example, things, you know, like having diabetes or chronic kidney disease and being on, um, on dialysis or having substance abuse issues like alcoholism. Like we all think of support groups and think AA. Well, no, many other types of support groups exist. I think depending on how we define them, do we define blogs and um, groups online as support groups, then probably the engagement of patients with cancer is a little bit higher. Um, but on those who are in person attending tends to be slightly lower than for other illnesses. The benefits, it really, I think, are, you know, numerous. One, you are getting to know other people who are going through the same illness and through the same steps and path. You're able to identify resources through them. People talk to each other in a support group. It's same as you talk to each other on a waiting room or an infusion center. And you hear about, you know, what kinds of therapies they're getting. Do they, are they on a clinical trial or not? What their experience is. Did they get referred to rehab or to see a nutritionist? And that provides a lot of empowerment. And I think um, the more you know, and the more you're able to share experiences, then you're able to go back to your doctor, to your oncologist, to your primary team and ask, well, I heard or learned from this person that there are these resources that exist. How can I get those? Or should I get those? Um, and I think there's so much um, power that comes from patients being able to ask any question that they want, to have the knowledge to be able to ask those kinds of questions. And because, unfortunately, in our current healthcare system, time is limited and doctors like ourselves many times have, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to see somebody, we're not able to address everything. And you, many, many patients will tell me, my doctor has an agenda and this is what they're talking about. And then we're done. And they don't take the time to explain all of those things. Um, so I, as I said this, and talk about empowerment, I, part of me feels that the burden should not be in the patient to be asking for anything, and we should be giving it to everyone. But as somebody who knows the reality of what happens on the day to day basis, um, I still believe that we are not there, I hope that we are someday. And that's why speaking with others, seeking for support, um, getting to talk to people who are going through things like you, it's very helpful. Um, and the last point I would make about support groups is I, I 
I know a little bit about them, as you can see, because I actually have done research on it and work with a support group of Spanish-speaking patients at um, the institution in which I work. And there's people who have been attending that support group for 20 years. So when we interview them and talk to them and you sit down and listen to their stories, they are family. They have a bond that nobody else has and can understand. Um, and it's very hard to describe that. Um, and, you know, I can speak to it, but I think that nothing speaks louder than if, if somebody keeps going to the same place to meet people who loses friends there who unfortunately die of age or cancer, who meets new friends and still 20 years later shows up. There's clearly some degree of benefit um, that drives you know, coming back. Thank you for that, that really thorough answer. I, I just to, another small piggyback to a similar <coughs> question is that when there are not a lot of resources close by, especially for things like mental and nutritional help, um, are there any apps or programs that you recommend people to, to download and use to help them? Um, maybe not so much with support and support groups, but um, for nutritional or, or mental health mental health itself? There are definitely apps for um, mental health. There are different studies also um, looking at implementing apps for meditation, um, for mindfulness, for doing exercises. Um, it depends specifically if those, most of them are either for pay or accessible um, through clinical trials. So it's something that I would look um, for at the same time, because I think there's benefit. Um, and there are organizations um, and, support, and national support groups for cancer survivors that are specific to usually types of diseases, so breast cancer, prostate cancer, esophageal, you name it, um, or the survivors network that have 1-800, um, for example, phone numbers in which you can call nationally from anywhere and be connected with services either around you or phone-specific counseling and phone-specific um, support groups too. Um, so all of those things exist. Um, it's more of how to be connected. Um, the American, I mentioned the Cancer Survivors um, National Network is one, and then the American Cancer Society is another great resource in which on their website, um, they have a list um, also and, and um connections based on region, on where can you get um, access to these kinds of, of services. Thank you. Um, so just a, shifting gears a little bit, a question is, when can a person do normal things like go back to work or travel? That's a hard question. Um, and that really, I mean, it depends on where you are on your cancer uh, journey and what kinds of treatments and disease do you have. So I, um, as I said earlier, I treat lung cancer patients. I have patients who are working every day um, throughout their treatment, having metastatic disease or stage four disease and getting um, immunotherapy, targeted therapies, sometimes even with chemotherapy. Um, so it really depends. There are other types of treatments, or for example, people who have blood cancers that may need a transplant in which they are going to be debilitated or be immunocompromised and at risk of infections for a long period of time that may not allow them to go to work. Um, so all of that is, is something that 
that patients need to discuss with their cancer doctor and that is very specific to um, the treatments that they're getting, the cancer um, that they were diagnosed, the type of cancer and how do they feel. Um, I'm at the same time, I would say a great um, advocate for traveling. Um, and that is something that um, if patients have planned trips um, to see their families, um, is something that I think it's, you know, important to do also. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, that it's not a one fit size fits all answer, that it don't have to wait till some certain standpoint and that it's important to live throughout this journey. Um, another question just came through um, asking, what is the cancer recurrence rate for breast cancer survivors within five years and after five years? And do you foresee a time when there is a test to confirm can cancer survivor is cancer free? Okay, so for the first question of recurrence risk, it really depends on multiple factors, one being what stage the cancer was diagnosed at, so how extensive it was. Um, and usually the risk is lower for um, earlier stages of cancer and increases as, um, as the stages advance. So for example, for stage one, which is the, the smallest of the stages, it's somewhere around seven percent five to seven percent and for stage three more in the realm of like 10 to 15 percent that being said those are very generic numbers and terms and depend on a lot of other um, factors so breast cancer is a disease that has multiple subtypes so whether people are hormone positive her to something positive or none of those which is something called triple negative disease that tends to be more aggressive um, so the rates of recurrence are very different depending on whether you have triple negative disease versus you have one of the other ones and other risk factors that may be on the specific pathology so something that on broad strokes is around the numbers that i gave but again um, depending on the specific case and then the second question was, do you foresee a time when there is a test to confirm cancer survivor is cancer free? That is really hard. Um, I hope so. I think that in the future, um, we are probably going to move more and more towards doing blood-based tests that are able to identify cancer sooner and see if there's smaller cancer cells that are circulating in our bloodstream that we cannot see on imaging. Um, there are certain clinical trials on different diseases and studies ongoing trying to identify if, for example, looking for those little blood cells, something called minimal residual disease, after somebody has surgery for cancer or gets treatment, impacts the likelihood of developing cancer again in the future, how long do they live or not? Um, and all of those are ongoing, are not something that right now we have across the board, but I think that at the speed in which um, science is advancing and discovery, there's a lot of excitement to potentially see those things in the future. Absolutely. And that was a nice little teaser for our next session um, for next week. Um, I have two more questions for you, and I know we're short on time, so I think I'll just ask one of them. Um, 
how should I deal with anxiety about the cancer coming back, coming from the perspective of a patient who you know has now completed their treatment for cancer care? That is really hard. Um, you know, I I think that seeking um, support is important. And um, there are certain studies looking at the use of psychotherapy, meditation, um, yoga, acupuncture, and different mindfulness um, specific approaches to trying to decrease that anxiety. Um, so different types of, um, there are studies surrounding it. And for example, in the Osher Center here at UCSF, we do have um, acupuncture, yoga, and meditation um, courses and classes that people can attend um, that definitely help with, with those. Thank you so much, Dr. Velazquez Manana. Um, and with that, I, we're right on time. I think I'll close out the session. So thank you everyone so much for participating today and thank you for your questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.